Jesus is king, Caesar is not, and woe, woe, woe upon the scribes and Pharisees. All that this week on The Backdrop. Hey everyone, Curtis here with another episode of The Backdrop for you. We're looking at chapters 21 through 23 of Matthew this time around. We covered a lot of this ground in our sermons along the way, but there's definitely more for us to talk about here. Um, So let's get right into it. One of the things I thought I would do with this episode, actually, is to highlight the multitude of Old Testament connections that Matthew and or Jesus weaves into these stories. Jesus is quite consciously portraying himself in the line of prophets like Jeremiah and Isaiah and Moses and the rest, and as the king in the line of David. And Matthew is highlighting those aspects of the story as well. So we're going to take a look at some of those connections as we work our way through these chapters here. We begin with the triumphal entry into Jerusalem with Jesus riding in on a foal of a donkey. Matthew quotes Zechariah 9, which says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter Jerusalem. Lo, your king comes to you. Triumphant and victorious is he, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall command peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. It's a passage of the king coming and restoring the fortunes of Israel, bringing peace and fulfillment of God's covenant with Israel and the kingdom of God. This is the passage Jesus is intending to bring to mind for the people who watch him enter Jerusalem. He is the king, come to fulfill the covenant and bring the kingdom. And this is enhanced by another passage that this scene would have brought to mind for those who knew the story of King David and who were looking for David's descendant, to take the throne. This is from 1 Kings chapter 1 and the events that lead up to David's death. It says this, King David said, Summon to me the priest Zadok, the prophet Nathan, and Benaiah, son of Jehoiada. When they came before the king, the king said to them, Take with you the servants of your Lord and have my son Solomon ride on my own mule and bring him down to Gihon. There let the priest Zadok and the prophet Nathan anoint him king over Israel. Then blow the trumpet and say, Long live King Solomon! You shall go up following him. Let him enter and sit on my throne. He shall be king in my place. For I have appointed him to be ruler over Jerusalem and Judah. Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, answered the king, Amen. May the Lord, the God of my lord the king, so ordain. As the Lord has been with my lord the king, so may he be with Solomon, and make his throne greater than the throne of my lord King David. So the priest Zadok, the prophet Nathan, and Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, and the Cherethites and the Pelethites went down and had Solomon ride on King David's mule and led him to Gihon. There the priest Zadok took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon. Then they blew the trumpet and all the people said, Long live King Solomon! And all the people went up following him, playing on pipes and rejoicing with great joy so that the earth quaked at their noise. Jesus is the king. Solomon wasn't the one people have been waiting for. 
There is no doubt this is the message Jesus is sending. One he then immediately complicates by, as I said in my sermon on this passage a couple weeks ago, heading straight to the temple and proclaiming judgment upon it. This complicates his message because the people would have been expecting the coming king to restore the temple to its rightful place and honor, which is not what Jesus intends to do. Although Jesus's actions are not without Old Testament precedent either. And both Jesus and Matthew, I think, would argue that what Jesus is up to by judging the temple and condemning it is actually exactly what you would expect the Messiah, the coming king, to do. This is what restoration looks like, in other words. And Jesus quotes Jeremiah to explain what he is doing and why, which we talked about it quite a bit when we were going through Jeremiah and Jeremiah was condemning the temple of his day. Jesus is condemning the temple in the same way and for the same reasons that Jeremiah did before Babylon destroyed Jerusalem. But then there is also another passage to look at here too. And we go back to Zechariah to find it. This is from chapter 14, a passage foretelling the day when Yahweh's kingdom would come. On that day, there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. And the cooking pots in the house of the Lord shall be as holy as the bowls in front of the altar. And every cooking pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be sacred to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and use them to boil the flesh of the sacrifice. And there shall no longer be traitors in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. The day Zechariah spoke of is here. The kingdom is here. Jesus is king, so the traitors need to be cast out of the temple. But if the traitors are being cast out, it's to make room for another group. Matthew tells us that the blind and lame come to be healed by Jesus in the temple, which probably would have brought to mind for the people, those with eyes to see at least, this passage from 2 Samuel chapter 5, when David first conquered Jerusalem from the Jebusites. The king and his men marched to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, you will not come in here. Even the blind and the lame could turn you back, thinking David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, which is now the city of David. David had said on that day, whoever would strike down the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the blind and the lame, those whom David hates. Therefore, it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. David occupied the stronghold and named it the city of David. David built the city all around from the Milo inward, and David became greater and greater, for Yahweh, the God of hosts, was with him. Now, the house in which the blind and lame shall not come, or to which they shall not come, is a reference to the temple, which didn't exist in David's day, but was built by Solomon and was often referred to as the house of Yahweh. So David excluded the blind and the lame as kind of a symbolic demonstration of his power. Jesus, in a literal demonstration of his power, reverses this exclusion, welcoming those sorts of people into Yahweh's house. Now, on another note, I love how often in these chapters Jesus says to the scribes and Pharisees, people remember whose literal job it is to know the Old Testament backwards and forwards, how often he says some version of, have you never read such and such passage from the Old Testament? (laughs) It's an incredible flex on Jesus's part. Another quick note on verse 21, where Jesus says that with faith, you can say to this mountain, be cast into the sea and it will happen. 
Several of the scholars I read in preparing for this made the point that the phrase, this mountain, spoken while Jesus is in and around the temple, would have almost certainly been heard not as a reference to some generic mountain or any old mountain that you could cast into the sea for some reason, but rather to the mountain that they were literally standing on, the temple mount. This is a variation, in other words, of Jesus's condemnation of the temple. It will be cast into the sea, metaphorically, making way for the restored temple, which is Jesus himself. And then one more quick note, in verse 32, Jesus makes one of his many references to the tax collectors and prostitutes, usually in favorable contrast to the scribes and Pharisees. I think it's fairly common knowledge that tax collectors were not exactly popular figures in ancient Israel, not simply because they were taking other people's money, often dishonestly, but also because they were, by doing so, collaborating with the Roman Empire doing Rome's dirty work, so to speak. They were one of the oppressors. So why are the prostitutes included alongside them? One commentary I read made the point that this is probably more than just the prostitutes representing immoral, sexual, promiscuous people or something like that. They argued that since Jewish prostitutes were frequented by Roman soldiers, they might be seen as comforting the enemy in an analogous way to the tax collectors. So that might be the connection here and why those two groups are lumped together in that way. Thought that was kind of an interesting angle. Now, on to the parable of the tenant farmers. This likewise has multiple resonances with the Old Testament prophets who often used the image of a vineyard to describe Israel. One wrinkle is that until Jesus turns the knife at the end of the story, those hearing this parable probably would have seen the Romans as the wicked tenants who are mismanaging God's vineyard, Israel. But Jesus is directing his criticism not at the Romans, but exactly like Jeremiah did, at the leaders of Israel herself, who have abandoned the sheep and mismanaged God's household, to mention two other images both Jesus and Jeremiah used to condemn Israel's leadership. But here are two passages from Isaiah, first from chapter 5, that give important background of what Jesus is getting at in this parable about the vineyard and the tenants who are not honoring the owner of the vineyard. Let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. He expected it to yield good grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now inhabitants of Jerusalem and people of Judah judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I expected it to yield good grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and it shall be overgrown with briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of Yahweh of hosts is the house of Israel, and the people of Judah are his pleasant planting. He expected justice, but saw bloodshed, righteousness, but heard a cry. And then similarly from Isaiah 27. On that day, a pleasant vineyard, sing about it. I, Yahweh, am its keeper. Every moment I water it, I guard it night and day so that no one can harm it. I have no wrath. If it gives me thorns and briars, I will march to battle against it. I will burn it up. Or else, let it cling to me for protection. Let it make peace with me. Let it make peace with me. 
In days to come, Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. I don't think I need to say too much here about the parallels. Jesus is obviously referring to passages like this from the prophets and is using this common, common image, one that would have been familiar to his hearers. He's using it for exactly the same purpose as Isaiah and the other prophets used the same images originally to warn of coming judgment on the temple and on the city of Jerusalem and the nation of Israel, just this time at the hand of Rome instead of Babylon or Assyria. And he is promising that there will come a time of fruitfulness on the other side of that judgment for those, the remnant, who remain. And then this passage of Matthew closes with Jesus referencing a rejected stone that becomes a cornerstone and which will smash down in judgment. And if you think Jesus is mixing his metaphors, you'd be right. He is, again, referring back to at least two different Old Testament passages. One of them, Psalm 118, a psalm that looks forward to the coming of the Messiah. It says this, Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I might enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord, the righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is Yahweh's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that Yahweh has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we beseech you, Yahweh. Yahweh, we beseech you, give us success. The Messiah will be rejected in some sense. Now, this was kind of mysterious, but then will be exalted by God to a place of honor. Christians, understandably, read this from early on as a reference to Jesus' death and resurrection. But there's nothing here about a stone crushing anyone. And for that, we need to turn to Daniel chapter 2, where there's a strange dream given to Nebuchadnezzar and then interpreted by Daniel. And this dream is about successive empires that would rise up, fill the earth, and then be replaced, and then would finally be crushed by a stone, which represents the kingdom of God. It says this, You were looking, O king, and lo, there was a great statue. This statue was huge, its brilliance extraordinary. It was standing before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of that statue was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked on, a stone was cut out, not by human hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away, so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Jesus is the stone that will be rejected and then exalted. And Jesus is bringing in the kingdom of God, which will smash the empires of the earth, to pieces and will fill the whole earth as it expands. And as verse 45 makes clear, the chief priests know exactly what Jesus is saying and that he is not just speaking of the kingdom crushing Rome, but of crushing the temple and their power as well. And they are not happy about this at all. And we get several stories following this of the leaders trying to undermine and trap Jesus at which they fail time and time again. One that I want to spend a little time on here is the passage where Jesus is asked about paying taxes to Caesar, because I think this is one of those passages that has been misunderstood quite a bit over the years. 
Many have read this passage as Jesus sanctioning what Martin Luther called a two kingdoms theology, that there is a civil kingdom of the state and a religious kingdom of the church, and that they are two separate sources of authority. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God what is God's. This is not what Jesus is getting at. I think it's quite the opposite, actually. So the story goes like this. The Pharisees and the Herodians, who make for very strange bedfellows, by the way, they show up to ask Jesus about a tax that Rome had instituted in AD 60, so a generation or so ago. It was a tax that was to be paid in the form of a Roman coin, the dinar. This coin was stamped with the head of the emperor, Tiberius Caesar on one side, and Roman symbols of power on the other side, and it had this inscription written on it. Tiberius Caesar, son of divine Augustus, high priest. Any Jew, but especially these ones that are trying to trap Jesus here, would know quite well what Jesus is getting at when his response is to say, whose image is this on this coin that you gave me? The law, the Torah, is quite clear about how Israel is to feel and treat graven images that are meant to be worshipped. And the inscription that we just read, and that Jesus likewise asks about, makes clear that worship of the divine son of God, Caesar, is very much the point of this coin. It's propaganda of the empire. And so what Jesus is doing here is trapping his questioners by pointing out that they are themselves in flagrant violation of Torah by even carrying around a blasphemous coin like this with the image of a man who claims divine status stamped on it. So sure, give back to Caesar this blasphemous coin, but give God what belongs to God, which is, by the way, as the Old Testament says, the earth and all that is in it. That's what goes to God. And of course, Caesar might stamp his own image on these coins, but Genesis tells us that God has stamped God's image on humanity. Jesus is quite clearly, I think, and quite cleverly, undermining Caesar's claims to divinity and recalling for his questioners where their own loyalties ought to lie, but apparently don't. As N.T. Wright says, this is a clear call to renounce paganism and to serve the true God, and a clear message that the method of the coming revolution is not going to be violent resistance to Rome's power and Rome's taxes, but rather reflecting Yahweh's image. God's love and goodness and justice to the world around us. That is how God's kingdom will overpower Rome. Moving on now to the Sadducees' attempt to make the resurrection seem ridiculous. Meredith covered this one in her sermon, but a couple of quick thoughts to add quickly here. One is that the point Jesus is making when he says that we will be like angels in the age to come is not that we shall all be sexless, but rather that we will all be deathless. And so Jesus is not saying there will be no marriage or no sex in the kingdom. After all, sex and marriage are very much pre-fall. They are a part of the good world that God created. Instead, what Jesus is saying is that the need for the situation the Sadducees are describing, what's called Leverite marriage, that will disappear. It was instituted because death would prevent the continuation of the family line. But when death is no more the need for such an institution is also no more. So will there be sex or marriage in the age to come? Possibly, but that's not really the point that Jesus is making here one way or the other. And so finally, we move on to the chapter of woes 
that Jesus pronounces on the scribes and Pharisees. These, again, are very much in the line of the prophets like Jeremiah, who made an abundance of proclamations of woe on the religious leaders of his own day. They are also a callback to the Beatitudes from the Sermon on the Mount. They are the inversion of the blessings that Jesus pronounces there, just as the scribes and Pharisees are the inversion of those who will receive those blessings. There are also seven woes, which might be significant because it might be meant to represent a complete rejection, since seven was the number that represented completion in Jewish numerology. One curious thing at the beginning of the chapter is that Jesus says that the scribes and Pharisees sit in the seat of Moses, and so his followers should do what they say, but not what they do. Wait, do what the Pharisees say? I thought the disciples were supposed to beware of the teaching of the Pharisees, like Jesus said just a few chapters ago. One scholar I read made good sense of this, I thought. Sitting in the seat of Moses means having access to, and literally reading aloud, the words of Moses, the Torah. And so we should do what they say in the sense of when they are reading the law, sitting in the seat of Moses, we should live according to the scriptures, but we shouldn't follow their interpretation of those scriptures, what they do. Instead, we should follow Jesus's interpretation. I thought that made sense of a kind of strange passage. And then when Jesus is saying not to call anyone teacher or father, He doesn't mean we should call our dads by their first names or something. This is about not putting people in places of honor, not creating a hierarchy of power and privilege, since, as we said at the beginning, the last will be first. Among other things, Jesus accuses the Pharisees and scribes of honoring the prophets of old while being those very people who would have put those same prophets to death had they been alive in the day of Jeremiah or Isaiah. And of course, we know that this is how it will play out, because they will put God's prophet Jesus to death in just a few chapters. In fact, Jesus is saying, they stand in the same line, not of the prophets, but of those who killed the prophets. And he says in verse 35, who killed the prophets from Abel to Zechariah. (laughs) You've killed all the prophets from A to Z, in other words. Uh, The Zechariah in this verse, by the way, is probably a reference to the story in 2 Chronicles 24, where a prophet, Zechariah, is killed in the court of the temple itself. In any event, the scribes and Pharisees have woe to look forward to because they do not recognize that they are being presented the same opportunity that Jeremiah presented to the leaders of Israel in his day, to repent and return to God, to humble themselves and live according to God's kingdom values. It's the same choice each of us has to make as well, of course. And we're going to end there for this episode. Next time, we'll actually take a little break from going chapter by chapter through Matthew to kind of take a step back and look at what the people of Jesus' day thought about death and the afterlife. So something to look forward to there. Until then, though, I hope you have a great week, and I'll see you then. Bye. Bye.